All right. Well, if you have your Bible, we're actually going to be finishing this chapter out here, um, looking at verses 13 through the end of the book at verse 21. So why don't we go ahead and read that, and then we'll get into it. So starting with verse 13, it says this, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And we are confident that He hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases Him. And since we know He hears us when we make our request, we also know that He will give us what we ask for. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray. And God will give that person life, but there is a sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying that you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one can't touch them. We know that we are children of God, and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and He has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and He is eternal life. And dear children, it says in verse 21, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. So, as I said, today we're going to finish up um, this book of 1 John. We've been looking at what it means to walk in the light and love of God. And as John has described in this book over and over again, walking in the light is simply the idea of walking in close fellowship with God walking with Him step by step through life, and as we do, getting to experience His love in so many different ways. And as we've stated week after week, the other side of that is when we experience God, when we're experiencing His love, when we're walking in the light and we're not hindered by sin, we can then become conduits of His grace. People, we can love people um, through His love through us. You know, He loves us, we love them. Um, now, all, all those seems like a pretty simple idea. As we've seen throughout this book, Satan puts many obstacles um, in our way to keep these things from happening. Why? Because the last thing he wants is for us to experience the love that God wants to show to us. That's the last thing he wants. Why? Because he knows that the closer we get to God, um, the more of him we get to experience the greater threat to his kingdom we become. It should be no wonder why Satan is fighting so hard. Because when a Christian is actively walking in close fellowship with God, that Christian becomes a great threat to Satan's kingdom. See, when Christians are walking closely with their Heavenly Father, showing his love, to the people around them, there's a natural result of that. The church is strengthened, God's kingdom is going to grow, and Satan's power and control is diminished in people's lives. He knows this, he obviously hates this, which is why he tries so hard to, to make it as hard as it is that we, for, for us to experience and do those things that God has called us to do. 
which is um, why we're going to close out today with um, a kind of a challenge that John gives to all of us. Now, as we close out this series, we're going to be talking about um, how, how God wants us as Christians to be Christians who are confident Christians. Because God knows that a confident Christian is an effective Christian. The problem with that is that Satan also knows this. Satan doesn't want confident Christians who are walking around with confident faith in God. He wants defeated Christians who are walking around with doubt and with fear, who are paralyzed by those things and not accomplishing anything. Now, when you think about this idea of confidence, it's, it really is true in so many areas of life that, that a confident person will be a far more effective, live a far more fulfilling life than a person that lives in doubt, that continually doubts themselves. Um, this is true in the workplace. An employee that, has, that is confident in their abilities will outperform an employee that doubts their abilities every time. It's, it's true in a ball field, a ball court, wherever you're at, a team that has confidence will be the team that doubts themselves almost every single time. Now, when we think about the Christian life, a Christian who lives with confidence will be a far more effective Christian, live a far more fulfilling life as a Christian than a person who constantly lives in doubt. Now, when I say confidence as a Christian, I'm not just merely talking about some sort of self-confidence. I'm not talking about um, just having confidence in our own abilities, although that's not a bad thing even as a Christian. What I'm talking about is, is having, having confidence in God. I'm talking about having the ability to live out our Christian lives with confident faith that God and His Word are absolutely true. Um, as we'll see, John, as we close out this book, he, he says, and we know, and we know, and we know. It's the idea that, that God wants us to live with confident faith, with confident hope. God wants us to believe and stand on His promises. God wants us to have the assurance that He is with us, that He hears us. God wants us to have the assurance that our lives are eternally secure in Him. God doesn't want us to live in doubt. He doesn't want us to live in fear. He wants us to know that He and His Word are absolutely true. Why? Because that really is the road to victory in the life of a Christian. When we believe God in faith and set the course of our lives according to what He has declared to be true, we'll not only experience what He wants us to experience in the present through Him, but it puts us in an incredible position to be used by God. A Christian that constantly lives in doubt and fear is a Christian that's crippled that can't accomplish anything for the Lord. But a Christian who walks in confidence in God can accomplish literally anything. This, a woman named Renee Swope said this, self-confidence has limited potential, but God-confidence has unlimited possibilities. It's the idea where the Lord said that He can do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think, but that only applies to a Christian who has confident hope in the Lord. That that's not bound by fear. That's not bound by doubt. So when we think about that, what would happen if Satan could get in our heads and cause us to doubt God? To doubt His Word, to doubt His promises, to doubt our place with Him, to doubt our, even our, our salvation, maybe even our future. What, what damage could Satan do to the life of a Christian if he could get into their heads 
and take away that confidence and rob them of that confident hope that we're supposed to have and instead sow seeds of doubt and sow seeds of fear? Well, the answer is that we would live a miserable existence as Christians and would honestly accomplish very, very little for the Lord. Because the reality is the enemy of confidence is doubt. And Satan knows this. Doubt is the enemy of the victorious Christian life. Where does doubt come from? It comes straight from Satan, who the Bible describes as the father of lies. And what we can know is that he's going to do anything he can to sow those seeds of doubt. Now, the question is, how does he have the ability to sow those seeds of doubt? And the answer is, it's only when we're outside of that circle of light, as we've described it week after week after week. When, when we're in a close fellowship with God, where we're walking in the light and experiencing his love, Satan's voice has no power. Satan's lies have no power because we're in the presence of God and we can, we can experience truth and see truth and know truth for what it is. So it's only when we're outside of, of right fellowship with God that it's Satan's manipulations work in our lives, which is why, even though it seems like a strange way to end a book in verse 21, well, I really believe John said it the way he did at the very end. So what we're going to do as we go through this, we're actually going to start in verse 21 and work our way back to verse 13, because to me it just, it, 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 it'll make a lot of logical sense as we do it, I hope, by the end of this. But as we think about, as we think about the confidence God wants us to have, I want to talk for a minute about verse 21 and what I want to call the, the confidence breaker that opens the door to Satan's seeds of doubt. And he says here again in verse 21, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Most of your older translations say, keep yourself away from idols. Now, what's an idol? It's essentially in its simple fo- simplest form, anything that, that draws our hearts and focus away from God. Now, in the first century church, um, idol worship was a lot more prevalent than it is today, although it's still very, very real today. It just looks different. You know, back then, um, we, we think about idols that were physical things, but, but, the, but the bigger deal was they were places where they would go. It was pagan worship, and, and when it came to idolatry and these idols and these pagan worship, what was involved in that for a Christian was something that was clear sin. It, it was things that were very, very perverse and something that Christians obviously shouldn't do. But, but at John's most basic point, he was simply saying, stay away from anything that is going to take your allegiance away from God. And here's what the reality is. Even if it's a little bit of, like a little sin or a big sin, anything that takes our allegiance away from God be, can become an idol in our lives. Even, even good things can become idols in our life if it takes away God, the, the allegiance to God that we're supposed to have. The, the reality is, is God wants first place in our hearts. He, he wants to sit on the throne right here. There's one, if you can picture a throne in your heart, that, that should be where God himself sits and God alone sits. When he's there, Satan doesn't have a foothold. But when we allow idols in our lives to take God's rightful place, the natural result of that is sin, which opens up the door for Satan. So, so what do idols look like in today's world? And again, it's, it's anything that can pull our hearts away from God. It, it could be things that are just obvious sins, things that we know that are just clearly sins, things that we commit, right? But they also could be simply things that distract us from God's best. 
See, when we think about sin, there's, there's sins of commission, meaning we, we do things directly against the Lord, the things the Bible clearly says we shouldn't do, we do, right? But there's also these sins of omission. The idea that when the Bible says that we should do these things, or we should have these things um, in place in our lives, or these should be the priorities of a Christian, it's when we allow other things to usurp those best things. And, and really what that does, it, 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 it brings our hearts away from God because we replace Him with other things that rob um, the devotion that He's supposed to have from him. The point he is making here is simply that incredible confidence is available to us as Christians, but if we let ourselves get distracted by the things of this world and allow our hearts to be pulled away from God, Satan will rob us of that confidence. And instead we will live with doubt, we will live with fear because he will sow those seeds in our lives. And so he, I really believe he says this here in verse 21 because this really is um, the, the one enemy of everything that he has talked about in this book. It's the enemy of walking in the light, is allowing these sinful things, these things that are drawing our hearts away from God in. Because if we allow that to happen, everything we have talked about is impossible. Now, with that settled, now I want to focus on the positive side of these things. Because in here, he talks about a number of things as Christians that we should know. Things that we should have confidence in. And if we can have confidence in these things, it'll absolutely transform our lives as Christians. So let's jump up one verse in, in verse 20, where he says, And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with the Son. Jesus Christ is only, um, he is the only true God and he is eternal life. And so John says that again, here in verse part of 20, and we know that the Son has come. Now, John was confident in this himself, obviously, because he knew Jesus. I mean, he, he saw him with his own eyes. John was an eyewitness to everything that Jesus claimed to be. Right, again, the, the context of this book were these lies in here. There was kind of twofold that some were saying Jesus was a human, but he wasn't God. And some were saying he was God, but he wasn't human. And, and John's point throughout this book is, that, no, he's clearly both, and I was there. Like, I touched him. I saw him meet. I knew he was a man. I saw him die, right? I saw him rise again. But I also saw what he did. I saw him calm the storm with the, with the word of his mouth. I, I saw him um, raise people from the dead. I saw him declare people's sins were forgiven. I mean, he, he, John knew firsthand that Jesus was who he said he was. If anybody had the authority to testify the truth about Jesus, it was him. Now, through the life of Christ, he has shown us, um, you know, how we can be forgiven, how we can be restored in our relationship. Because it's not just that John says we can know that he has come, but he says he's given us understanding that we can know the true God. You know, when we think about Jesus, Jesus showed us through his actions as he did the work of salvation through his death and resurrection that he was the Son of God, right? He, he, as he did those things, he, he showed us how salvation works. He showed us exactly what we need to do to be saved. And it wasn't just in his actions, he did it in his teachings. The, the message of the gospel wasn't something that the apostles made up. 
It wasn't something that the disciples got together and go, this sounds like a good plan, let's do this. No, this was the message of Jesus all the way through his ministry. If there were any other way for a person to be saved, to be made right with God, I mean, I'm sure the apostles would have said so, and yet Jesus in his life made it very clear that he was the way, the truth, and the life. There was nobody getting to the Father without him. And John says as Christians, we need to have confidence in this. We need to know these things to be true. Can you imagine if Satan can sow those seeds of doubt? If we look at Jesus and all that he has done and all that he has accomplished, and because our hearts aren't right with God, we begin to doubt that Jesus is who he says he was? Do we begin to doubt the salvation that he offers and go, wow, I mean, is he even real? Am I even saved? Who's ever had those thoughts? That's what Satan tries to do. He wants to rob us of this truth that John says that we need to have as Christians. The most foundational thing of the Christian faith, Jesus is who he says he is and he did what the Bible says he did, right? We need to hold on to those things and have confident hope that they are absolutely true or else Satan will sow seeds of doubt. Now, another aspect of of this is that, even think about Jesus' life and why this is important, right? Because he said again, He's given us understanding so that we can know the true God. Not just know how to get to God, but Jesus showed us who God was. Like he, he showed us different attributes of God that people never even thought about before Jesus came. See, before Christ came, many knew God was real, but they looked at him as many still do today, somebody who is beyond our reach, somebody who is on his throne, separate from us. Um, someone, some, some even picture him by reading the Old Testament as maybe a, a harsh God. You ever hear somebody say that? that? That Just by reading the Old Testament, like, oh man, there's a lot of harsh stuff in the Old Testament. And yet when Jesus came, He showed the world a completely different aspect of God. It's not that God wasn't always this, but Jesus just showed it in real time. Sure, he showed God's power and authority. He showed God's holiness and perfection. But but he also showed through his life that, that, that God is a God who cares for the brokenhearted. That God is a God who cares for the outcast. God is a God that, that desires to meet even the most simplest need of his children, that God is a God who cares even for the greatest of sinners and has a desire to save them. Jesus showed this. He gave us understanding of this through his life. If you remember in 1 John 4, it says that God is love, and Jesus proved that by the way that he lived. He, he showed an aspect of God that people had never seen. And again, why, why is that so important for us to, to hold on to? Because the alternative is to believe the way so many others, that God is just some distant entity, that he would not want really anything to do with us, he doesn't care about us, he doesn't love us, he doesn't... How much difference does it make in a Christian's life when, when we know that he wants to walk with us, that he wants to talk with us, that he wants to provide for us and comfort us and meet our needs? How much does that change our Christian walk? And John says here that we need to know these things are true. And think about this, it says, and now we live in a fellowship with the true God because we live in a fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to earth, He he proved through His life and death that God's greatest desire is to be with us. It's why He created us in the first place. See, because of Jesus, because of what He accomplished and what He did, what that showed us in its probably biggest thing 
is that God in heaven wants to be with his children. And he was willing to give the greatest sacrifice ever to make it happen. That's how much he loves you and me. Now, if we move on back to verse 19 then, he says this, we know that we are God's children and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Now, I don't like that second part, but it is the reality, right? We don't have to look very far to realize that the world is under control of, of Satan, unfortunately, right? There, there's proof of it everywhere we look. In fact, we can feel that war waging within us. Um, I was just talking to the, the gals up here before worship practice, and I was just like, hey, it's so refreshing to be at church because the spiritual war that is waged from Saturday to Saturday is so intense, and you just feel so beat down by the end of the week. But man, when you come together as Christians, there's just something about that that is so refreshing. The point is, is that we feel the war. We know, it's, we know this to be true. If we know anything to be true, it's that the world is under the control of the evil, and we can see it everywhere. And yet, we have absolutely nothing to fear, even though that's reality. Why? Because we're not just some second-class citizen. The Bible says here that we are God's children. When he saved us, he didn't save us just to become servants, even though that should be our desire. He made us his children, adopted into his heavenly family. We are now co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That, that's what he did for us. I, I love the illustration Tony Evans gave in one of his um, Bible studies. And, and he was sharing the story um, about his grandson. And his grandson, um, there was this dog alongside of the road that um, he walked up to. And that, and that dog, you know, started barking at him. And, and boy, he cried and screamed and hopped, uh, hopped in Poppy's arms, you know, he said. And he said, but boy, he said, something changed when he got in Poppy's arms. He looked down at that dog and <laughs> he started yelling at him and stuff like that. But, but I love that illustration because, like I said, we're not secondhand citizens. We're children of God. We belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has absolute sovereign authority over everything, even Satan himself, and we belong to him. 1 John 3 and verse 1 told us that, see how much the Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. I love that. As John said in, in his gospel in, in verse 12 of chapter 1, all who believed in Christ and accepted him have been given the right to become children of God. That's what we are. We need to hold on to that to be true. We're not just some people that are down here. We are heavenly royalty and we belong to our heavenly Father. We are absolutely His. How do we know this? How can we have such confidence that we're indeed children of God? Because as 1 John 4.13 told us, God has given us His Spirit as proof that we live in Him and He in us. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8 and verse 15 and 16, we have not received a spirit that makes us fearful slaves. Instead, we've received God's Spirit when He adopted us as His own children. And now we call Him Abba Father for His Spirit joined with our spirit to affirm that we are children of God. We need to have confidence in this truth. I, I want to read just a passage from Ephesians. Just, just, this is how much God loves us. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, without blame, before him in love, having predestined us as adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Just, just think about that. Before the foundations of the world were laid, he chose you in Christ because he wanted to, just because he loves you. In spite of everything we've done, all of our mess-ups, all of our failures, he says, I want you. Friends, we need to hold on to that to be true. If Satan can sow those seeds of doubt in our mind where we lose sight of that, we will be miserable in the face of this evil in this world. But if we can hold on to the truth that we belong to God, that we are his children, as Romans 8, 37 says, we can go through life with this attitude that we are more than conquerors through Christ who gives us strength. That's the way we need to live. Now, as we move on to verse 18, this leads right into this, where he says, We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. See, as children of God, we should never live in fear of the evil in this world or Satan who controls it. No, instead we need to have confidence that we are held in the mighty hands of Jesus, just like this verse says. You know, one of the greatest truths of all the Bible is that when we come to faith in Jesus, it is an eternal decision that can never be taken away from us. For all the power that Satan and his hordes have on this world, they don't have any power whatsoever to remove us from the hand of God. We absolutely belong to him. Jesus said himself in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. Satan doesn't have that power. But does it mean that he won't try? Of course he's going to try. He, he may know that he can't take us out of Jesus' hand, but what Satan does know is that he can absolutely wreak havoc in our lives if we allow him to. How does this happen? through sin. But even there, what a good, what a good news it is in, in 1 John 1, 9, where we said, where we, where we found out here, even, even when we sin, if we'll just confess them to God, God's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, even though, even though sin is probably inevitable in our lives, if, if we just do things God's way, Satan has absolutely no power in our lives. Zero. Sin can no longer master us. As he says here again in verse 18, Christians don't make a practice of sinning. Those Christians who are held in the, in the arms of the Lord, who are, who are in His light, who are in right fellowship with Him, they, they don't sin. At least the idea here is go on sinning and continue sinning without stop sinning, right? It, it, they, they don't sin without any bridle, if you will. It's, again, it's not, it's not the idea of never messing up. It's the idea of just habitually living in sinning and not caring. Christians won't do that that are in right fellowship with the Lord. Satan has no power. Again, in 1 John 3, verse 6, anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. In verse 9 of 1 John 3, those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them, and so they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. Satan has no power if we're connected rightly with Christ. 
Why? It's because of this idea in Romans chapter 6 that says that um, it gives this idea of baptism. When we were buried with Christ, we were also raised with Christ. And it goes on to say that, that, that sin no longer has control of us. When we came to faith in Christ, when we came and we grabbed on to what we know to be true, that He's the Son of God who went to die and rose again, making salvation possible, we received that, became children of God. And guess what happened? The chains that Satan had on us fell off. He no longer has control. That sin nature that is inside of us can no longer master us as Christians if we would just choose to be rightly connected to the Lord. They can't master us. It's impossible for sin to master us. As Paul said in Galatians 5.16, I say this verse a lot since we've went through it. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives and then you won't be doing what the sinful nature craves. We have this power and we need to know this and to hold on to us. Sin can't master us and Satan can no longer manipulate us. It says here that the evil one cannot touch us. Again, it doesn't mean that he's not going to try. It's the idea that when we're connected rightly with Christ, Satan's voice has no power. Why? Because of 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We have the spirit of the living God dwelling inside of us, and that is more powerful than Satan and all of his army combined. We need to hold on to that as truth and, and have confidence in that reality, confidence in verses like James 4, 7 that says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When you're facing those temptations, when he's those, those lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life we learned about earlier in this book, if we will hold on to these truths when those things come, draw near to God and Satan will flee. We need to hold on to that to be true. Another aspect of something we need to hold on is the, the idea here in verses 14 through 17 is the idea that we need to have confidence in our prayer lives. That prayer works. That prayer is powerful. That God hears us from his throne. That God moves at the petition of his people. Now, why do we pray beyond because we're supposed to? Right? Like, that's the obvious one, right? Because we're supposed to, but, but why? Because it connects us with God. It's the portal by which we can access heaven. It's a powerful blessing that God has given to us as his children that we can connect our hearts with him. As Ephesians 3 and verse 12 says, because of Christ and our faith in him, we now have bold, uh, we, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. But, but prayer isn't just for us. It's not just about our lives. We see in the scripture we need to be praying for one another. Paul said, pray for me um, in, in multiple areas in, in, in his letters, right? He was praying for them. Prayer is God's tool that, that makes God's hand from heaven come down and work on earth. For whatever reason, that is the means by which God has chosen to move, by the prayers of his people. If we want God to move, guess what we have to do? We need to ask him. Remember what Jesus said? We have not because we ask not. And the same is true for, for, for the lives of the people around us. God, if we want God to move in this person's life or this person's life or this person's life, we need to pray for them. And we need to trust God and believe that he hears and that he's going to move. Now, is there anything that can affect the effectiveness of our prayers? Absolutely. 
One being a lack of faith and two being sin. Both of those things have great negative effects on our prayer life. Satan knows this to be true as well, and so guess what he tries to do? Sow seeds of doubt and cause us to sin. Because then the, the portal that gets us access to heaven that will get God's move to move here, guess what? It's, it's broken. If he can get us to be faithless Christians who are falling into sin, this has no power whatsoever. And guess what? He wins. In, in 1 John 3 and verse 21, remember what John said here. Friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence. You ever had those times in your life where you've just had a rough week, had a bad attitude, did some dumb things, said some dumb things, and then it's time to pray and you're just like, how in the world do I come to God and pray? Like, he doesn't want to hear from me. Who's ever felt like that? See, if, if we don't allow Satan in, we come to God confidently and boldly knowing that he hears us. Listen to what the psalmist in Psalm 66 said here. He says, Come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he did for me. For I cried out to him for help, praising him as I spoke. If I had not confessed the sin of my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his unfailing love for me. When, we're, when our heart is connected with God, we can come in faith and have confidence and believe that he's going to move, and he will. 1 Peter 3, 7 gives this idea that it's, it's, a, it's really a warning to husbands about how husbands are supposed to treat their wives rightly so that your, prender, your prayers might not be hindered. The point, sin hinders our prayer. It hinders the effectiveness of our prayers. However, what if we're walking rightly with the Lord? Well, what if we're connected to him, connected to his heart, in right relationship with him? James 5.16 says the earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and produces wonderful results. Some most translations says the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, is the idea. When we're living in close fellowship with God, we can know that he hears us. If our hearts are right with him, prayer can accomplish literally anything. As, as, as Ephesians 3.20 says, all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish, accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. And, and then so he, he gives a couple interesting, there's a couple interesting verses in here that, that almost seem out of place, but it's, it's the idea that he's bringing application to his point. We can know God hears us, we can know he's going to move, but sin disrupts things. Right? And so he gives one example, right? If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, we should pray and God will give that person life. Well, let's make one little point. The wages of sin is what? Death. And so he's not saying that there are some sins that are really not that big of a deal. That's not what he's saying. What this seems to be saying is this. As you know, as Christians, we all have issues. Like, there's, there's, I struggle with things that maybe you have mastered and vice versa, but the point is we're all struggling. But can we agree that there's a big difference between a Christian who has struggles, who know they have struggles, who are constantly trying to overcome those struggles, the seeking God to overcome those struggles, than the person who is living in sin and doesn't care? Can we agree that there's a difference between the two? 
And so what this seems to be saying, again, because he goes on to say that, but there is a sin that leads to death, and really the A, um, the, from a lot of the commentary that I've read, the A that's in there really is one of those things that could be in there that could not be in there. The, the point is it's not talking about a specific sin probably. It's talking about the idea of a person who has sinned so much and has gone past the point of no return, if you will, that once they get there, their hearts are hardened so bad that prayer, honestly, is probably not going to do much because they've hardened their heart so bad against the Lord. Now, a couple examples of this. Um, one is in 1 Corinthians 11. It's actually um, where we have, it's in the communion chapter, right, where we take the Lord's Supper. But if you read on in that passage, it, it's, about, it's about these people who were, were clearly sinning. They were making a mockery of the Lord's table, right? They were, they were hogging it all for themselves, and there's people that couldn't take part because they were just being super, super selfish. And, and, and Paul says that, and some of these people because of this have even died, I think it was Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 4, 5, 6, somewhere in there where they, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they came in and were giving us money. Yeah, we gave it all and they were actually withholding some, died in the spot. It's the idea that a Christian can get to the point where they have given themselves over to sin so much that they have destroyed the testimony of Christ and there are times that God will take that person out as an act of mercy. The point is, is that sin has a great effect on the life of a Christian. We can know when we're rightly connected with him that, that our prayers have power because he hears us and he will move, but sin just, it, it, it messes things up. But there's one more aspect of this that we can't look past when it comes to prayer. It, it's where he says here, we are confident that he hears us when we ask for anything that pleases him. Again, most older translations says when we ask according to his will. Now, I will say this. If a Christian is in their word, reading God's word, not allowing sin in their life, rightly connected, can I tell you the natural thing that happens? We pray according to God's will. Because why would we pray for something that's contrary to what Scripture declares? Does that make sense? Have you ever noticed in your, in your prayer time when you're praying something, you start, have you ever started quoting Scripture? Like, there's, there's this person that you, man, you're just praying for them to be saved. God, your word tells me that you're not willing for any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. But according to your will, God, I desire that person, and I know you desire that person to come to faith in you. Right? Do you see the, the power that's there? Or, man, God, I'm struggling with this sin, but God, your, your word tells me that sin cannot master me as your, as your children. That, that, that I've been freed from the power of sin, so God, by the authority of your word, move. Is there different? I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about? There's a confidence that comes when we pray like that. And, and we should be confident in our prayers when we pray according to his will. But can I tell you something? Even when we get to those things that are maybe a little bit on the gray side, like, is God going to heal that person or not? I don't know. Is, is it God's will that that person be healed as a testimony of his greatness? Or is it God's will that that person pass on from this earth because he's going to work in that some, somebody else's life through that. And, and often we look at that and go, God didn't answer our prayer. And, but if, if we would pray like Jesus did, 
He asks us, nevertheless, not my will, Lord, but yours. We can even have confidence in our prayer that God's still going to move. As the famous verse in Romans 8.28 says, because God causes all things to work for good for those who love him, those who are called in according to his purpose. Can you imagine if we could have confidence in our prayer what God could do? He could move mountains. Jesus said so. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can take that mountain, sell that mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will go. Nothing is impossible with God. And just the final thing as we close in, in verse 13, maybe the coolest part of the, the passage here. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You know, when we think about our lives as Christians, if we could hold on to just that one truth, that no matter what, even if I lose my life, I'm going to pass from death to life. I'm going to close my eyes and open them up in the presence of the glory of God. If we could have that type of confidence and hope as Christians, can I tell you something? God could do anything through us. There would be zero limits. Satan would have no longer have any power whatsoever. We cannot allow him to cause doubt. And can I just say this? You know what one of the, the, the greatest tools Satan uses to cause doubt? Of our salvation, of our place with God, of our eternity. It's when we start basing on our eternity based on what we see in our lives. Oh, I screwed up today. Oh, I messed up today. How could I do this? How could God love me? How could God call me his own? How could I possibly be saved? I mean, we've, been, we've all been there, right? But if we'll just hold on to this truth that our salvation is not based on our works, it's based on the work of Christ, if we can hold on to that truth and have confidence in that most basic foundation of the Christian faith that because I belong to Him, I belong to Him no matter what, based on His righteousness, based on His perfection, not mine, Satan has no power whatsoever. Jesus said in John 3.36, anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. John 5.20, this is Jesus speaking. The guy who knows everything, right? The guy who saw our every choice in our lives. He said again in 5, John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they will have already passed from death into life. 1 John 2, 24, 25, remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father, and this fellowship we enjoy is the eternal life he has promised us. We need to hold on to that, folks. Tony Evans said this, assurance is part of the essence of saving faith. If eternal life can be lost, it can't be eternal. God wants you to know that you have eternal life, not based on your fluctuating faith, but based on the object of your faith, who is Jesus. Friends, we can have the confidence that John's talking about here. As an old man who went through a lot of things, he lived it, he was living proof that this is possible. And what was possible for him is still possible for us today, but it only works as we walk in the light and love of God. And so I'm going to close with this verse in Hebrews chapter 12. 
verse 1, it says this. Well, chapter 12, and yeah, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, it says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. What is this race? It's to do all that we can to walk in the light of love of God and to show that to people around us. And as we do, we will experience Him our life will be changed, the people around us will be changed, and God will be, he'll be glorified in and through us. Let's, if you get anything out of the book of 1 John, get that. As we walk with him, we can accomplish anything. We will experience victory in this life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the encouragement, the truths that we've learned in this book. I am so thankful for the life of John that disciple that you loved who, who walked decades with you and then remained faithful. Father God, we, we should have confidence in his word because he lived it, he walked it all the way to the end. God, give us the faith that he had. Give us the confidence that he had. Give us the ability to walk with you like he did. God, so that Satan has no room to work. Heavenly Father, I just pray if there's anybody here that is struggling with some besetting sin, Lord God, that you would deliver them. That, Father, you would allow them to walk in right fellowship with you that they can experience all we have talked about throughout the course of this book. And, Father God, if there be anybody um, listening or anybody that has never made the choice to follow Christ initially, let them make that choice by simply calling out in faith, receiving him as their Lord and Savior. Lord God, I just I thank you for your patience with us. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the victory that we have in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.